0: Hello and welcome to this edition of SSI Live. My name is John Denny and I'm a Research Professor of National Security Studies here at the Strategic Studies Institute, or SSI, at the U.S. Army War College. It's Friday, May 19th, and today I wanted to address the upcoming NATO Summit, or rather, the summit that's not really a summit, occurring next week in Brussels. This will be President Trump's first meeting with all of the other heads of state and government of the NATO alliance, and it will be closely watched, not simply by NATO geeks like me, but by international observers of all sorts, as well as by the informed public. The reasons for that are probably clear enough. Candidate and now President Trump has had, shall we say, a somewhat difficult relationship with the alliance so far, declaring it obsolete at one point some months ago, and then declaring it no longer obsolete just a few weeks ago. And additionally, his relations with key European leaders, such as Germany's Angela Merkel, reportedly have gotten off to an uncertain start. Given how early it is in the Trump administration's tenure, the meetings to occur on the 24th and 25th of May in Brussels aren't really being labeled a summit in the traditional sense. More specifically, we shouldn't expect to see the multiple deliverables and initiatives that are usually generated by a NATO summit, and reportedly there won't even be a typical summit declaration announced by the NATO leaders at the end of the summit. Nevertheless, the NATO leaders are going to address some very important issues next week in Brussels during their meetings. Of course, we can expect them to address whether and how NATO will play a larger role in the anti-ISIS coalition in Syria and Iraq. It remains to be seen whether the Allies are really willing to give the NATO imprimatur, and frankly, what more that would do to the effort there. All of the NATO Allies are already participating as individual coalition members in the anti-ISIS coalition. And so I'm not really sure what NATO organizationally, what more it would bring to the table if indeed it is made a part of that coalition. The second issue we can expect to come up at the alliance meeting next week, is of course that of defense spending. And it's very clear the Trump administration is eager to have the allies accelerate their efforts to try to meet the spending goals they have each committed to now for many years and most recently reiterated just a couple of years ago at the Wales Summit. I think for the most part, the European allies are likely to try to parry those requests to try to speed up the commitment to achieve the 2% goals. But we can expect, in any case, some heated discussion and debate over this topic. Now, I want to address in this respect specifically Germany. It's certainly not the worst in European NATO when it comes to burden sharing. We can think of allies perhaps such as Italy or Spain that probably have the capacity to do more, but just have not in terms of defense burden sharing in recent years. But Germany has been the focus of a lot of attention over the last couple of months in this context of the transatlantic debate over defense spending, primarily because of its large, prosperous economy and the fact that it is, of course, seen as the first among equals in Europe, at least continental Europe. Unfortunately, it seems to me that Berlin is hiding behind a number of what I would say are specious arguments to avoid trying to do more than it's Already announced, and let's be clear: Germany has announced that it is going to increase its defense spending. It, along with most of the other allies, have indeed increased defense spending over the last year or two. Uh, in some cases, these are minimal increases, but over over time, they should be more substantial. But uh, it's not certain how quickly Germany will be able to reach the 2% goal. In any case, in these recent inter-alliance debates over defense spending, Germany has frequently relied on a couple of key arguments to try to counter Washington. The first, Berliners argue that foreign aid should count toward its security spending. Now, this is a view that's held widely across most of Europe. That is, that diplomacy and development are just as important as the military in providing achievable, sustainable security in Europe and beyond. Now, this approach taken on the part of Europe is known as the comprehensive approach, and it's similar to what we in the States call the whole-of-government approach. I think Germany is certainly correct that diplomacy and development are critical components of Western security. Uh, For example, there's research that shows there's a positive correlation between certain types of foreign assistance and reductions in terrorist attacks. At the same time, though, there's other evidence that suggests that the connection between foreign aid and positive development outcomes is maybe mixed at best. More importantly though, Germany, along with all the other members of the alliance, made a a commitment, admittedly just a political one, but they made a commitment to spend the equivalent of 2% of their GDP on defense, not on foreign assistance. If we're going to now rope foreign assistance into the 2% goal or into burden sharing for the NATO alliance, that tends to muddle whatever the defense spending goal is, and I think would necessitate a complete reexamination of what the goals are. The second argument frequently relied on by Germany is that the 2% goal ignores defense spending outputs. Other countries in Europe have made the same argument. In fact, I've made the same argument. I think it's certainly true that the 2% goal really fails to measure what the Allies get for their defense dollars, euros, and pounds. So Berlin argues for its part that German contributions to current operations, which are significant, should count for something. And I made much the same argument, that the Allies don't get credit for the operational commitments they made or the risks they bear in those commitments. And the example I've usually pointed to is that of Denmark uh, in particular, which certainly spends well below the 2% goal, but has shown in its deployments to Afghanistan and elsewhere a strong willingness to take on some of the riskiest missions. Now, European leaders, especially those willing and able to deploy forces abroad over distance and time, including Germany, Denmark, France, and others, their right to press for an inclusion of output measures. This only makes sense, it seems to me. But until the Allies agree on a fair, accurate, more comprehensive measure of outputs... NATO does have an option to try to address this side of the burden-sharing equation, and that is it could simply publish the progress toward the usability goals that it already tracks. At the NATO Wales Summit 2014, allies pledged once again to meet their own usability goals. NATO defines force usability as follows. It means 50% of each member state's overall land force strength should be deployable and 10% of that strength should be either engaged in or earmarked for sustained operations out of territory. However, the Allies failed to publish the progress toward those goals, so they track it internally, but it's not made public, in the same way that Alliance defense spending figures are made public every year. Making these usability data public would be a simple, interim way of trying to assess the outputs. Now third, and this argument isn't often stated publicly, but many in Germany fear that increasing defense spending to the equivalent of 2% of its GDP, which would result in a budget uh, for Germany of about $67 billion, that's far higher than the current $41 billion, that this would raise fears among Germany's neighbors of potential overmilitarization and domination of Germany on the continent. And Germany has long preferred to be in third place, really, among European NATO member states, behind the UK and France. So it wants to be perceived as a leader within Europe, but not the leader when it comes to military spending. And a defense budget of $67 billion would certainly make Germany the largest defense spender in European NATO. However, to think that a significantly larger German defense budget alone would send chills through Germany's neighbors I think is inaccurate. First of all, Germany remains steadfastly anchored by its own constitution and by Western multilateral institutions like NATO and, and the EU. And these collectively prevent potential militaristic adventurism as we saw decades ago in Germany's history. Moreover, Germany's European allies, especially those to the east, they, to me at least, seem eager for Berlin's leadership in defense and security. For instance, Germany's been welcomed as a framework nation in NATO's new Enhanced Forward Presence Initiative. Under this initiative, it's going to send uh, a battle group, a battalion more or less, to Lithuania on a rotational basis. The first time German forces have been deployed to northeastern Europe since World War II. And although he was speaking of more than just the military, former Polish Foreign Minister Radoslaw Sikorski famously said in 2011, Quote, I fear German power less than I'm beginning to fear German inactivity, unquote. In the same vein, Baltic leaders already recognize that in any armed crisis launched by Russia, Germany is going to play a key role as a first responder. So it seems increasingly apparent... That many German leaders are relying on this fallacious set of arguments, including the purported concerns of European countries, as a rather convenient excuse to avoid spending more on defense. Now, of course, we must say that with the September federal elections just around the corner, campaign politics are playing a role as well. German Chancellor Angela Merkel is certainly keen to avoid making defense spending any more of a campaign issue than it already has become. And more practically, Berlin is right to want to ensure that increased defense spending is purposeful and that it avoids unnecessary duplication. But there's no shortage of needs today in the Bundeswehr, including filling units that are only fully manned on paper, ending the current equipping model in Germany whereby only deploying units get the full complement of their unit's equipment, and replenishing underfunded readiness accounts. Other requirements in the German military today include expanded intelligence and reconnaissance capabilities, and sufficiently modernized infrastructure in Germany, not simply for German forces, but also for U.S. and other Allied forces based in Germany. So in sum, it seems to me that given the many important defense and security requirements facing the Bundeswehr, as well as the political commitments already taken on by the German government, the arguments for at least Berlin not doing more seem increasingly dubious at best. You can now find SSI Live on TuneIn Radio and on popular podcast directories like Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. If you have any comments on our podcast, thoughts on what you'd like to see addressed, or response to something you heard here at SSI Live, please go to our new website, ssi.armywarcollege.edu. Find me, John Denny, in the staff directory, and send me an email. I look forward to hearing from you. For the SSI Live podcast series, I'm John Denny. Thanks for listening.